miss the show no worries we've got you covered on our podcast and on point tonight why we must start having the conversation about living with COVID-19 instead of always knee-jerk reacting shutting things down we'll talk about the politics of school closures and why political gain may be at the root of all these decision making and is it coming at the cost of our kids and the dollars and cents of pandemic loans 243 billion paid out so far and why taxpayers are being exposed to a lot of risk because there are no real checks and balances. Let's talk about that. What's your point? You just don't ever get to point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. We are going in the wrong direction now, which is why it is so important for Canadians to do what is necessary, to wear a mask, to keep your distance, to understand that each of us has the power to end uh, this by the choices we make. You know, the experts warned the second wave was coming, and yet here we are again, caught flat-footed. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, October 5th. I hope you are all well. I am better-ish. Back after a couple of days of just feeling awful. And it's very weird, you know, when you're working out of home to call in sick. But uh, that tells you how kind of crummy I felt. But I got whatever my son had which was a cold of sorts, but uh, I'm an old lady. So the hit was all, was always going to be harder and then longer to bounce back from. Albeit it did not help that I had him jumping all over me as he bounced off the walls because, of course, he wasn't allowed to go to school last week. And last Monday, the policy in place at schools meant he had to, and any other kid that got a snotty nose, had to get tested before they could get back to school. So he schlepped up to get a test last Monday morning, And then as it happens, because kids get cold all the time, the sniffle cleared up overnight. But because of that policy, everyone else also ran out for a test too, which then created this massive backlog in testing. I still don't have his test results. And I tried to check at five o'clock tonight and now the system's crashed. But I sent him back to school today because there's absolutely zero reason for him to be home, zero. And the policy changed from the province last Thursday so that kids with cold systems don't need testing. They can come back 24 hours later once the symptoms clear. Now, my kid had no fever. We don't go out all that often. We're very, very careful. He didn't travel anywhere, not exposed to COVID. So based on the change, I tried to send him back on Friday, but that wasn't allowed because the Toronto board was waiting for specific marching orders from the ministry before changing the rules. So never mind that the premier announced it. Never mind that it was all over the media. Any kid who had a symptom or a test stuck in the system had to stay put. So I called public health on Friday. They didn't even have his profile in the system. So two hours on the phone there getting all that cleared up. I mean, I was hardly inspired that, that I was ever going to get the result. And so then, you know, the school says, just get a note from your doctor. Right. Okay. Have have any of you tried calling the doctor lately? Has anyone tried to get their kid's doctor on the line? Because they don't answer. So don't bother. They don't answer the phone. Getting a, a, a phone answered, let alone a doctor's note, is impossible. And so over the weekend, I happened to get a notice from the doctor saying they don't have the resources to write notes for kids. Because obviously everyone's calling them to get a doctor's note. And so they're sending parents an attestation form. 
so that you can give that to the school. It's like you write your own note from, I'm now Dr. Mom, and we're now operating on an honor system. Now, I still have no test results, but my word or your word should now be enough. And I tell you this not because it's all about my kid. What I'm talking about is a system in chaos. And where my frustration has been echoed, I think, by thousands of parents who played by the rules and now find themselves stuck in just bureaucratic nonsense, just chaos, whether it's, you know, in Toronto or Ontario Health. And then you've got the, the school board operating by its own kind of set of rules working at a snail's pace. And if you're bothering to have questions, for if you have any questions for Toronto Health on the weekend, don't bother. They are closed down. I don't, I don't know why they would ever think to have uh, that place open on the weekend during a pandemic, but color me shocked. But I think what's become very, very clear over the last few days is that the second wave that everyone in charge kept telling us about, everyone knew was coming, and yet no one in charge is ready for it. In no way are we prepared for what we were warned about for months, because testing's a mess, get tested, don't get tested. Now results are backlogged, 80,000. And now they've got this new system. You book appointments. Well, that means days of delay. If you can get an appointment at all, which then begs the question, you know, how many people are walking around with a virus who can't get tested, but they still have to go to work or they have to take care of their kids. They don't have the luxury of just sitting home. And we don't know that because Toronto Public Health, they're working summer hours, just oblivious to common sense. And maybe during this crisis, maybe bulk up some staff on the front lines, maybe have the office open seven days a week to answer the thousands of questions coming in from people who don't know what to do. But even worse, they wouldn't know anyway because they're not even tracing anymore. They're just going to focus on isolated confirmed cases, which means the city with the most cases has completely lost control of the virus. And the province says, well, we're going to send in help. Well, that's great. It's way too little, way too late. And yet Dr. Davila, and as you'll hear Joe Cressy, you know, they're out demanding we shut businesses down without any data to back it up. If we are going to get a handle on this pandemic, if we are going to beat this second wave and keep our schools open, we're going to need some immediate measures now and that's why we've raised the alarm bells around contact tracing. Excuse me, Mr. Cressy. You should have thought about that before. I mean, it's easy for them to say, shut it all down. It's not like Joe Cressy or Dr. Davila or anyone in the city has to worry about getting their next paycheck or paying staff or making a rent payment. You know, we did our part in the spring. We flattened the curve. We made those sacrifices. And we did have a handle on this thing. What the hell were all the politicians doing? Because they didn't plan for the testing. No one demanded that the federal government get off its rear end and expedite rapid testing. No one, certainly at the Toronto level, thought, well, let's set up these war rooms to man phones 27, you know, 24-7, you know, bulk up the front lines to get information out. And now because they're in a panic, I guess private business is expected to be once again the sacrificial lamb. Which today, thank God, Doug Ford said... Not so fast. It's easy to go in there and say, I'm just shutting down everything. Show me the evidence, hard, hard, concrete evidence. There's thousands of small mom and pop shops. I'm not talking the big conglomerates. 
I'm talking these people that have put their, they're, they're your neighbors, they're your friends, they're your family members. That weighs on you. I have to have a, a, a balance before I destroy someone's life. I, you better show me real, real good evidence yeah, but the, the question I have is, why doesn't he have any data? Why doesn't he have that evidence? I mean, we are not in this together. Let's get rid of that stupid saying. It's not a thing. And we're at the mercy of all these experts who are making this thing up as they go along, who did not bother to use the downtime of summer to get ahead and prepare for what we all knew was coming. You know, we gave them the time to get ready for the second wave. And here we are again. So if, if anyone wonders why people aren't buying in now, well, because those in charge have lost control. And too, too many people are obsessed with Donald Trump and don't pay attention to what's going on here, to the many screw-ups happening right here in this country. So keep watching Donald Trump because guys like Trudeau, the guys at the provincial level, the guys at the municipal level, they're just scrambling to make this thing up. But hey, Donald Trump over there. Well, no, pay attention here because this didn't have to happen. This should not have happened. And yet here we are. You know, no Thanksgiving dinner for your family. No going out. All these new rules, possibly shutting down societies. All because I don't know. I cannot for the life of me wonder how we got here again. Especially knowing we had SARS. Remember that thing they all told us made us so prepared? Not so much. But what's the goal? You know, what are we trying? Are we trying to flatten the curve? Are we trying to get rid of every single case? I have no idea what the plan is. I just want to know why we aren't hearing anything about learning to live with this thing without destroying complete lives and entire economies. Well, Toronto Health, as we've been hearing for the last few days, demanding the province shut down large parts of the economy so we can get control of a virus that they themselves say they're not even tracing anymore. But you wonder, you know, without that data, without being able to pinpoint where these problem areas are and where the virus is actually being spread, I don't know how you justify these closures and the financial destruction a second shutdown would cause to millions. And until we have a vaccine, we have to live with this thing. But right now, the only approach we seem to be hearing is this knee-jerk reaction to daily COVID numbers that don't have context and I don't think tell the whole story. Dr. Vivek Goel is a member of the COVID-19 Immunity Task Force and a professor at the Dalalana School of Public Health. Good to have you. Good to be here. It's a big part of the conversation and it's not being had of how do we live with this thing instead of just shutting it down and yet no one's talking about that. Um, I think uh, we are starting to see people talk about it a little bit more, but I would agree with you that um, right now we continue to have this uh, dichotomy of it's COVID or the economy, and we don't actually talk about the fact that the economy is also a major contributor to health, and it should really be about the different health consequences of what we're doing uh, that we're having the conversation about. 
Right. I mean, we, we hear the phrase, you know, we're all in this together, but we are not all in this together. If you're a private business owner, you are absolutely losing sleep every night because you don't know if you're going to survive this. And if you've already lost everything, then you've got a whole other set of, of problems. And, you know, I think it's easy for someone to stand up there and say, well, we should just shut it down. But again, you know, the experts in charge, the Dr. DeVillas and all those people, they'll still get their paycheck. They're not worried about paying their bills. But if you want a business, uh, this is really crushing. And you, the CEO of public health at one point in the province of Ontario, 2008 to 2014. So you know what, you understand what it's like to have to make decisions. But I feel like a lot of them are made kind of with not a lot of thought to those who actually be impacted. Um, you know, I think uh, the people in public health uh, do actually uh, try to take account of this broad population health perspective that I'm uh, speaking to. Um, I think they're, you know, in part also driven by the broader community concerns that are being raised and uh, by the, as you said, the focus on the daily numbers. And so I, I, I don't think it's fair to just put it solely on the shoulders of the public health officials. They're also working in the context of what the broader community is asking for. And I think the broader community has become so scared of COVID-19, they see the daily numbers and they see the focus on that. And so then they are pressuring politicians and public health leaders to do something about that. They don't see as much about some of these other broader consequences they don't necessarily hear as much about what's happening to those small business owners or the people that work in those uh, locations or what the health consequences for those individuals will be if they don't have the money to put food on their table and feed their kids. Um, and, and so what I would hope is that in conversations such as this, we actually get everyone to start to recognize that there are consequences on both sides with COVID as well as with the public health measures. And we haven't really seen those consequences because there'll be, I think, years in the making of mental health issues. And, and again, we haven't had the real economic hit because the government um, ha has been able to prop up a lot of the economy uh, temporarily. But those hits will come and the yeah. devastation will follow. But, you know, we, and, so, and if I could just add on that, there's two things. One is that it takes time for those consequences to come through. The other is that they're statistical, right? Mm -hmm. um, if there are um, increased... Um, uh, deaths due to uh, heart attacks because people right. haven't been going to the emergency room. We won't actually know which one was due exactly to the public health measures, but the COVID cases are counted and reported every day. Right. And then we base our reactions off of that. You see a number of 700 and everyone flips out, but there's no context given. I mean, now we're learning that public health is rolling in cases that happened earlier in the summer just to kind of clear them out of the backlog. But if you're reporting that as 700 cases, that's a lot different than saying we had 500 cases plus 100 from the spring plus, you know, there's no context given uh, to hospitalization and, and, and context matters with this disease. Yeah, yeah context matters. And you know, rather than focusing on the daily counts, it should be a focus on the rolling average over a week's period or seven days. Um, but I will note that that has been increasing steadily since the beginning of September, and the number of hospitalizations is increasing uh, lagged and at a slower rate. Um, the real point I would make is that we should have really been making sure we were getting ready for this mm -hmm. during the summer months. And so you refer to the contact tracing being dropped, um, the test capacity, 
I mean, that's because the test capacity wasn't there. If you're not testing people fast enough uh, and getting results fast enough, then contact tracing starts to become a little less uh, useful because you're not getting to people when you need to inform them of who they might have been in contact with. If we had really been thinking about this from that broader perspective, we would have been looking at, okay, to keep our economy going, to keep those small businesses and restaurants and so on open, back in September, we should have really been ready um, to start to ramp up the testing and tracing so that as the numbers started to come up very gradually, when we were still at the 100 or so per day, or in Ontario, we were actually well below 100 for some period of time, at that stage, you can do testing and tracing and keep things contained. If we'd done that, we would have been able to keep the um, economy going. Now we're back having the same conversation at a stage where, unfortunately, we may not have too many other tools left. Um, and I'm hoping we can start to have this conversation so we're ready for the potential third wave that we may see. Because if we drop things down now um, by putting in, you know, say, restaurant closures and so on, it'll bring them down in a, it'll take two or three weeks. But then at some point, it'll start to come back up because we'll start to relax things. So we're going to be in this sort of situation for some time to come. And we really need to think about what are the things we need in place in order to keep all those businesses and activities going. The fatigue of this thing and the frustration, and, and I think the reason that you're not, <clears throat> you're not getting people buying in and doing their part is because, as you say, you know, we were caught flat-footed. There's no excuse for us to have been caught flat-footed on something that we had been warned about for months, and yet here we are with no rapid testing. Uh, public health doesn't even work weekends. We've got a backlog of tests of 80,000. Um, you know, a report by the Canadian Federation of Nurses Union came out today saying that, you know, it's very clear. We did not learn from 2003. We had this dress rehearsal, as you well know, in SARS. And so when the prime minister asked today, you know, why have we been caught so flat footed? And, and there's plenty of blame to go around at every level of government. How have we been caught so badly? So uh, I do want to correct one thing. Uh, the public health people work 24-7 um, and the labs do keep running through the weekend. So I'm not sure where that's coming from. Well, the from. public health where people need information, that they don't work weekends. So the, the lines that they say, you know, can get information, you, you can't get yeah, through. Yeah. Okay. But in terms yeah. of the backlog of tests, that in fact, they use the weekend to um, get the numbers down. Um, you know, again, you, you need to get a political scientist in to talk about um, why we're in, in the situation because, you know, as you said, we've known about some of the infrastructure requirements that we need to have in place and labs and information systems and so on. It's not just since the start of COVID, um, since SARS and there were reports before that, we've been had reports since then. Um, and, you know, unfortunately what happens for public health is when there's an event like SARS or H1N1 and now COVID, everyone focuses in on it and, and some investments get made. Um, when you go a few years without any major events, um, things start to get cut again. And we've had reports on that, right? And so um, I think, again, I, I don't think it's fair to look just to public health. I think we have to look at ourselves as a society. Why are we not willing to make the long-term investments in the infrastructure ne necessary to be ready for this? Um, no, one, um, no one questions investments in fire departments uh, but most of the time, firefighters are not out fighting fires, right? We support firefighters to be there when there's a fire. Unfortunately, that does not happen with public health. And we will pay the price. Just quickly before I let you go, doctor, um, 
you know, we do have to learn how to live with this thing. The vaccine's no guarantee and certainly not coming anytime soon. But is it too late at this point, do you think, to live with this? Do we have to go through yet another shutdown to get prepared for the next one? Well, you know, I would say uh, we have to, first of all, avoid a complete shutdown like we did in March at all costs. And I think uh, what we are seeing in the comments from all levels of government is they're working to ensure that. And, and the most important thing that I think everyone is focused on is keeping the schools open, right? Mm -hmm. um, because that is so important to the development of our children and, and their lifelong outcomes that putting kids through another shutdown of the schools like we had yeah. in the spring would not be good for them. And so then if you're going to keep the schools open and we're going to contain cases from the levels that they're getting to in places like uh, Toronto and Ottawa, we may have to look at other targeted measures. And I think that's what um, at this stage we're arguing for is instead of a blanket shutdown like we had in the in March and April, um, that we have targeted shutdowns. And unfortunately, that will mean that some sectors, uh, and again, the data is really important and you've highlighted that we may not have as complete data, so then we're making decisions maybe on incomplete data, but um, some sectors like bars and restaurants are the source of many of the close encounters that lead to cases into outbreaks, um, banquet halls and other places. And so that's where we're seeing the targeted uh, measures being taken. And right now between what Toronto's are asking for and what the province is doing, it's really a difference in degree. The province has reduced hours for restaurants and, and bars, uh, reduced the numbers uh, for banquets and, and so on and for gatherings. Toronto is saying in our jurisdiction, we're at the stage um, where a shutdown for some uh, um, period of time for indoor dining um, is necessary. And it's because of the result of the rapid growth of cases over the last few weeks, as well as the fact that we've run out of resources for doing the rapid testing and contact tracing, that we can't control those. And so the only measure you're left with is starting to shut down the places where the outbreaks are happening. So we will have to go through it, uh, likely at least some phase components over the next few weeks. But I, what I would hope is we can start to have some serious conversations to ensure we make the investments so we don't have to go through it a third time and more times. Because as you said, a vaccine is gonna take some uh, more, many more months and perhaps even years. Scary thought. Doctor, I appreciate your time on this. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, goodbye. That is Dr. Goel. There you go. He has lots of experience in this, and um, it is what it is. So with uh, cases on the rise, certainly there's a lot more concern over whether we're going to have to shut down schools. And I'm a firm believer that we have to keep them open, and we have to keep kids in a normal structure as long as possible. So closing schools should, should absolutely be a last resort. And this is not because we as parents need babysitters, but because structure, things like socialization is so crucial to a child's development. And last week we talked about the lost generation, this marginalized kids falling through the cracks once the schools shut down and they were pushed online and then out of sight. But are these decisions based on health risks or for political gain that will come at the cost of kids' futures? Alec McGillis is a journalist with ProPublica. This is a nonprofit newsroom that investigates abuses of power, and he just released an investigative piece that was co-published in The New Yorker that delves into what he calls the lost generation. 
the students left behind by remote learning. And Alec, you're based in Baltimore, but your story is playing it on both sides of the border. And that's why I was so struck by it. And these decisions are made at the state level in your country, at the provincial level here in Canada. But does your research show that they are being made too easily for political gain? Right. Um, although Canada at least has the advantage that you are missing or largely missing a dynamic that has been so devastating here in the States that I think has driven actually a lot of the school closures here, which is, you know, this really hyper-polarized um, situation where, where you have, you have Donald Trump, you've had Donald Trump since early in the summer pushing hard for schools to open, which, um, which played a big role in a lot of democratic, heavily democratic cities and towns deciding to stay closed even though they had, in a lot of cases, had quite low transmission numbers and were actually quite safe places to reopen schools. But the issue became so polarized because 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 Trump came out for opening. Um, just in, 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 of course, in, in very much in, in general, COVID has become so polarized uh, in, in the states where you have blue cities and towns taking the virus much more seriously um, and and being much more worried about COVID risk, um, in part because they see um, Trump and and the red states not taking it seriously. So you have this kind of mutual polarization that goes on, and and I do believe that that's one reason why why a lot of these these big cities in America that are heavily democratic are, are staying closed because they've come to see COVID as kind of a metaphor for Donald Trump, and. Right. And and if you and the, the the scarier you make COVID out to be, and the more dangerous you make it out to be for to, to open to reopen schools, the greater the failure is for of Donald Trump's is Donald Trump's failure to have controlled it. And so, it's really hard for a lot of people to separate those two things, and and to to recognize that yes, Donald Trump has has let the country down and, and has been a, a great failure, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that COVID is as all dangerous and all um, and as high risk uh, in some of these uh, situations as we've made it out to be. It is political here. I mean, you might not just hear it because it's so much noisier in your country. Uh, and it's not just with politicians, but certainly the unions, the teachers unions and outside groups uh, who all have kind of their own agenda. And parents and kids are, are kind of stuck in the middle of this thing and struggling. And it's the kids who are the collateral damage. And, and I, I mean, the question, what would the question in your mind be that these groups with their self-interests should be asking themselves? That's a really good question, and I've and it's something I posed to the unions. Actually, I spoke to the national the uni leaders of our national unions, teachers unions here, and also the Baltimore union. And what I asked them was, um, you know, it's it's fine for the unions to be self interested. That's that's your that's your that's your your whole purpose, and so you want to make sure your teachers are safe when they go back to the classroom. But I I do wonder what their long-term thinking or even midterm thinking is here. If, if public education starts to unravel because a lot of families start to abandon the system because they, they want their kids to be in actual school and they don't want their seven-year-olds learning how to read on, on Zoom. Um, if people start to abandon the system in a big way, that's not gonna end well for the union, unions themselves. If, if, if the financial and, and public taxpayer support starts to melt away from the public schools, that's going to be terrible for the unions and their members. There's going to be mass layoffs. And, and I, so I do wonder if they're thinking about 
their own self-interest in in a more sort of um, midterm and long-term way here, and and why they're not more concerned about the the the, the effect on their own members of of the of a long-term closures. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean I, I don't think uh, you know look your politics should be parked on this issue. It's not. It can't be a political issue. Otherwise, we become so polarized on it, um, and ultimately we know who the costs are. And so um, you know the unknowns that we're dealing with. Um, I think when when it's so tough in your country, certainly, but it is tough here for people to put their politics aside and do what's best for the kids, opposed to doing what they want to do for themselves. We've seen it time and time again. We're still seeing union ads now trying to drive their message because they want smaller classrooms and they're trying to exploit this pandemic to get it. But I think, as you say, they do so at their own long-term detriment because once the public system's done, then you get a very um, unlevel playing field moving forward as far as education. Right. We now have a situation in, in a lot of our cities here, including Baltimore, where you have pri- kids who are in private school are actually going to school and kids who are in public school are not going to school. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, think about that for, that for a second. It's crazy. It's like something out of uh, South Africa, 1980. I mean, it's really I mean, that's what we're looking at right right, right now here. Yeah. And, and those are charged, you know, in their in fairness to them, I mean, they have to make decisions fast, but it is so hard to imagine in 2020 that two G7 nations that this is the best we can offer. Um, you know, it's one thing if you can afford private education, your story is a lot different. They were able to turn this thing on a dime in 48 hours, but most can't. And one day I think we're going to look back in hindsight and say that, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, but by then the Shermans of this world, it's going to be far too late. Right. Exactly. And so your piece is a snapshot in time. Where does the story take us from here? I mean, do we still have time to rewrite this? Boy, um, well, the, in, at least in Baltimore, we're supposed to be reassessing in mid-October and they might start letting some of the younger kids um, back in. I, mean, I think everyone agrees that we, that it's especially just terrible for younger kids. Um, and it's also especially inexplicable because younger kids are even less likely to be sources of transmission of this virus. Um, so you might have some gradual ramping up, but I, I doubt that um, it'll get to seventh grade to, to, to Shamar's age um, by, you know, by the end of the fall. Um, so this, this is his foreseeable future. This is his reality. Alec, uh, I appreciate your time so much on this. I know how busy you are. You're also authoring a book. Uh, dare we say when that's coming out? It's coming out in March and it's called Fulfillment. And it's about Amazon and regional inequality in America. So a whole other problem. <laughs> All right. So you're keeping busy during this pandemic. Well, I can't yes. thank you enough for uh, joining us with uh, with us tonight. Uh, the piece is called Students Left Behind by Remote Learning. You can read it in uh, The New Yorker. It is a co-published piece, but it is done uh, hard work by ProPublica on this. So park your politics because it is an absolutely heartbreaking eye-opener and a must-read uh, as we move forward. Alec, thank you. All right, thank you. That is Alec McGillis, journalist with ProPublica. And uh, the piece is called The Students Left Behind by Remote Learning. And you can read that in The New Yorker. It is very much worth your time. It's a very big eye opener. Well, we're hundreds of billions in, in pandemic spending so far, all going out the door, another 50 billion on Friday. And this money's going out the door so fast, there's very little debate, very, very little oversight. And it's getting rushed out quickly, of course, on the premise that people need it. They need the help. Okay. But now the guy in charge of minding our dollars and cents is warning that there's $236 billion in pandemic loans alone that have gone out the door. And these things are backed by crown corporations. 
but they've provided so little information on the risks or the losses or maybe the cost to taxpayers that should these lenders collapse, it's we, the taxpayers, who are stuck on the bill. And of course, it's got such little oversight. MPs haven't been able to get access to what risk we as the taxpayers are being exposed to when it comes to these kinds of loans. Yves Giroux is a parliamentary watchdog. That's what I call you, the watchdog. And um, you have the very unenviable job of counting the beans. And um, I got to be honest, that would be pretty hard to do in these days because we've got all this money going out the door, but the only figure we really hear about, Eve, is this $400 billion in deficit spending. Let, let's just start with that. I mean, is this a guess or a fact? Do, we, do you even know how much we're at? Well, it's hard to figure out exactly how much we're at, but we know it's going to be anywhere between 300 and 400 billion dollars in terms of deficit when the year ends because right now the government has spent well over 200 dollars 200 billion dollars in covid support and the revenues have uh, have taken a, a deep dive because of the uh, slowdown in economic activity so even if they stopped spending for example if they didn't introduce any new measures to implement the speech of the throne commitments we know that the deficit would be well above 300 billion dollars probably around 330 billion dollars without any speech from the throne measures so we know that it's going to be about that and any announcement that takes place uh, after or that took place after September 1st, you have to add that to that $330 billion deficit for the current year. It's a good thing you've got such thick skin because this would have me in the fetal position every night looking at this and saying, where are we at? But, you know, we're also assuming that there's not going to be any more spending. We're now into the second wave. The prime minister admits today that it is going the wrong way. And we still haven't had any word on energy sector spending, uh, bailouts for transport, uh, you know, airline transportation, hospitality. There's so many sectors that are massive that need help. Do you have any guesstimate of how much more we could be spending? Um, your guess is probably as good as mine because we haven't had any indication on the part of the government as to what it plans on doing for these other sectors, whether it plans to implement any of its speech from the throne commitments in the current fiscal year or whether it would rather wait next year when things start getting better. So um, no idea as to how much more there could be in spending from the federal government. As you mentioned, there are sectors that have been affected very badly and for which there has been no or very little support. Airlines industry is one. Um, the oil and gas sector is another one, another sector that's uh, been hurt very badly by the world economic situation and very low oil prices. Uh, so it's likely the government will want to step up and intervene in these two sectors, in addition to uh, supporting the Canadian economy, Canadians and businesses uh, as the second wave is hitting us. But um, no indication yet as to the amounts that could be at play here. And then I read about $236 billion, which has gone out the door in what are called pandemic loans. And these are things that are backed by crown corporations. So I'm talking, uh, we're talking about Farm Credit Canada, the Business Development Bank. It was $150 billion of pooled mortgages uh, bought up by the CMHC. N none of them have disclosed ongoing risks. Now, these are, these are crown corps. So these are owned by the government because they're the only shareholders. So what risk would there be? What are we talking about here? Well, for example, the CMHC, um, as you said, they're 
they've pooled mortgages and and they've issued uh, mortgage bonds and and they've supported lenders, mortgage lenders. So, if for example there was a sudden drop in houses price in house prices, or uh, if there was a, a further increase in um, in unemployment rates, uh, followed by increases in bankruptcies, all mm-hmm. things that are possible. We don't know what what would be the impact on CMHC's portfolio. The same thing with uh, Farm Credit Canada. If uh, price of, uh, of goods that or produce that uh, farmers uh, grow, the crops, if they were to suffer from a world economic downturn, we don't know what would be the impact on FCC's losses. Mind you, these crown corporations are usually very profitable. In, in any given year, even in previous recessions, they have succeeded in turning a profit. So it's very unlikely that the the profits would turn into huge losses. But it would be beneficial for parliamentarians and Canadians to know the extent to which these crown corporations are exposed to risks and also what are the sensitivity or stress tests that they have Mm. done internally because we know they have done these simulations uh, to see what would be their losses in the event of catastrophic, further catastrophic events. So it would be good for them to disclose that to parliamentarians without revealing commercial secrets. Right. It would also be nice for the taxpayers to know exactly what they're being put at risk for, because we're the ones ultimately that have to uh, deal with the fallout. But, you know, uh, one thing that comes to mind, certainly with the CMHC, would be if interest rates go up at all, and they are expected to. And so that does become a very big concern. But why would the government not be able to borrow the money without involving these agencies? Well, the government is fully able to uh, borrow the money without involving these in- these agencies. But these crown corps are very useful tools that already exist, and they were created for specific purposes. For example, in the case of Export Development Canada, they were created to support exports by Canadian businesses. So it totally makes sense to use them. They've already have established the network of branches and the expertise. They, they have the networks, they, they know businesses that are in need. Uh, same with the Business Development Bank. They know businesses, small and medium-sized businesses that they've done business with in the past. So they know which ones are in a situation where they could, uh, they could, um, they could be supported, um, and they've got already got the expertise and the branch networks to support them. So that's why the government used these crown corps. They've already been uh, set up. They've established. They've well. They're well known among their client base. So uh, it totally makes sense to use them. Um, what we're saying is that it, a bit more transparency would be very helpful. CMHC is probably the best in these four. Uh, the Bank of Canada is also one crown corp, but they've been the gold standard so far in disclosing what they've done since the start of the pandemic. Uh, but the other four are probably in need of uh, a bit more transparency. You know, I think a lot of people think that we can just, you know, spend and borrow w- without consequence. W- what consequence are you worried about most? What What's keeping you up at night um, these days? Uh, well, uh, what I'm worried about is... Uh, when the interest rates start to increase again, uh, the cost of servicing that increasing debt will go up. Right now, people are focusing on on the in, the cost of servicing the debt. So even mm-hmm. though the government has taken on much, much more debt, people are saying, well, 
the cost of servicing that debt is going down despite the fact that the, the debt is going up significantly. Well, yes, that's true because interest rates are at records record lows. But chances are over the medium term, if you're thinking not about the next few months or years, if you're talking five or 10 years down the road, where we will still have that big debt that we are incurring these days, that debt will still be on our books. And if if and when interest rates start to rise, then we'll have to pay much more money than we are right now, potentially, to service that debt. And all this money to pay interest on the debt will not be used for other purposes, such as public policy goals and objectives. Things like healthcare, you know, the things that we don't stuff have. Stuff right like now. that. <laughs> yeah. Well, stuff that we are really counting on these days. Yeah, and already see the glaring, uh, you know, cracks in the system. Well, uh, it's not like you haven't been waving the red flags, warning people, but uh, sure glad you're able to do it. Uh, thanks for your time tonight. It's a pleasure. That is uh, Yves Giroux. He is the Parliamentary Budget Officer, known as the Watchdog. Counter of our beans, and it's good that we have him there. Thanks for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10 here on Global News Radio. We'll talk again. I'm Alex Pearson on Point on Global News Radio.